to assure you, you will not hear slurping from my water bottle this morning. I came with a mug instead, so I've gotten a lot of feedback on that when I've preached here. Just kidding. Um, so no slurping this morning. Um, I also want to tell you, I had a dream last night uh, in the few hours that I did sleep that I was uh, out in the lobby actually during worship um, and that I was frantically reading over my sermon while you all were singing. And all of a sudden, you all just exited the sanctuary. And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> and someone said, well, the mic stopped working, so we're just leaving. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so uh, we're doing great because that didn't happen, and we are going to hear the word from the Lord today. So is it okay if we pray again? I know we just did, but we can't pray enough, right? Lord, I ask that just as you already have been present with us, Lord, in guiding our time together this morning, I pray that your spirit would continue to lead us. God, I pray that um, the words that I speak would be from you, God. If anything I have written down isn't, just make me not say it when I get to that part. Um, God, I thank you so much for this church family and just the opportunity that we have to gather this morning and to worship you and to glorify you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, as we continue to look at um, what Jesus taught about the church, let's get a quick refresher on what the church is. If you were here last week or you listened, you know that Pastor Matt talked through um, a couple different things that we mean when we say church in our world today. But this morning, there's one particular definition of church that we need as our foundation to talk about what we're going to talk about this morning, which is corporate worship being a family who gathers together to worship the Lord. And so that definition is this. Church is not an event. It's a community. The church is the assembly of women, men, and children redeemed by Christ, filled with his spirit, and living in communion with him and each other in a way that reveals to the world the invading reality of God's kingdom. Amen. That's a good definition, isn't it? I can say that because I didn't write it. <laughs> so if we... <laughs> that was a delayed laugh. <laughs> you threw me off. Okay. So if we believe, church, that it is important for this assembly to gather together in worship, then I think we have one very important question to explore together today. And that question is this. What is worship that is pleasing to God? And I think there are many answers to this question, but we are going to focus in on just a few of them this morning. And the first one is pretty foundational, and you've probably heard this a lot in Sunday school if you grew up going to Sunday school, that we are to worship God alone, right? Scripture like, love the Lord your God and serve him only, or what about the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. See, we are made to worship. God created us as worshipful beings. It's what we are made to do. And so based on that, I would say that even when it's subconscious, even when we're not even sure that we're thinking this, we are always asking this question, who or what is worthy of my devotion? Who or what is worthy of my surrender, of everything that I am and everything that I have? And I think, sadly, sometimes we act like there can be multiple answers to that question. 
based on the way that we live and think and talk to people and, and the ways that we use our resources and gifts that God has given us. But church, there's only one answer to that question. Only the Lord is worthy of our devotion and of our surrender. Now, I know what you're thinking. She's already done with the first point, so we're going to be out of here really early. Sorry to tell you the next few points are going to be a little bit longer. But this lays the foundation, right? Worship of God alone is worship that is pleasing to God. But worship that is also pleasing to God must come from the heart. Or another way to say that, it has to be genuine. Psalm 51, 16 through 17 says, You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Now, in this passage, it's written by King David, he isn't saying that sacrifices or our outward expressions of worship are pointless, right? That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that they're pointless if they aren't coming from a broken and repentant heart, from a thankful heart, from a heart that is filled with love for God. See, David knew something that we all quickly forget it's that the, the sacrifices that the Israelites were making on a regular basis, animal sacrifices, giving their tithe, paying their grain offerings, burning of incense, all of these things, David knew they only ever existed to be an outward expression of a transformed heart inside. Now, I know I'm about to lose some of you because I'm talking about mushy, emotional, heart, lovey-dovey stuff, right? But I want to say to the non-emotional people in the room, or the people who feel lost sometimes because they're not having these emotional responses to worship that they see other people around them having, let me tell you this. The Israelites, when they talked about the heart, for them it represented the center of our bodies and really what it meant to them when they talked about your heart, your entire heart being transformed for God. They were talking about all of who you are your entire self. And so we worship with our whole bodies, right? We dance and we sing and we lift our hands and we pray and we journal. We sit in nature, we memorize scripture, we meditate. We do things that are not just emotional, right? So to them, a transformed heart really means a person who is completely born again and made new in every way. Look with me at Luke chapter 10 starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Sorry. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The religious man in this passage is quoting a well-known passage in Deuteronomy, right? That we love the Lord, again, with everything that we are. With our mind, with our soul, with our body, and yes, with our mushy, lovey-dovey heart. <laughs> 
So what I'm about to say next is probably going to blow some of your minds, but just stick with me, okay? We have to remember, church, that God doesn't need our worship. Look with me at Psalm chapter 50, starting in verse 8. I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer. This is the Lord speaking. But I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens, for all of the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for all the world is mine and everything in it. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? This is what the Lord says. Sorry, that's the next passage. I got ahead of myself. I love how God's being a little bit um, sassy, I feel like, in this passage um, and asking a lot of rhetorical questions, right? Because he knows that we know the answer. He doesn't need our animals and our sacrifices, and if he's hungry, of course he wouldn't come to us. Or about this passage from Isaiah 66, starting in verse 1. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth. They are mine and everything in them. I, the Lord, have spoken. See, God doesn't need us the way that other mythical lower G gods need humanity to give them things, right? We read stories of ancient mythical gods that need humanity to help them procreate or build temples or, or um, give them food to eat. But our God, the one true God, doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need our praise or our worship or our sacrifices or our tithes. And if you're still struggling this, with this, maybe this question will help. Would God cease to be who God is if all of humanity turned their backs on him and never worshipped him? No, right? But God does delight in our worship when it comes from the heart. Isaiah 62.4 says that God delights in you and will claim you as his bride. And he delights in our sacrifices when they are an overflow of our love for God, not just out of obligation. See, our motivation matters to God. And finally, worship that pleases the Lord. Not finally, there's one more, huh? Hold on. Worship that pleases the Lord is not transactional. Um, my husband can attest to this. I am terrible to watch sports with if you are really passionate about one of the teams that's playing. Why? Because I am an empathetic sports watcher. Anyone else in the room like that? It's so hard, right? Because... I don't care what team they're on. If somebody drops a pass, if they miss a kick or a basket or whatever other words I'm forgetting, anything like that, no matter what team they're on, I feel bad for them. Like, I feel it in my body. I'm like, oh, that's so sad. And, and a little bit of this is lighthearted, right? Cause, but some of it's serious. Like, genuinely, I feel for them because I'm like, oh, they are so disappointed in themselves right now. Or I think... 
Can you just imagine the weight that they feel of all these fans who are disappointed and probably yelling and maybe yelling some things they shouldn't be yelling? Um, but then, like, it gets even more serious because sometimes people receive death threats, like, if they don't do as well in a game as the fans think they should have. Like, it blows my mind. So I genuinely, like, it's, it's a little bit painful for me to watch these things. Um, poor Matt. So, so back in 2010, I'm going to read this word for word or I'm going to mess it up. In an overtime game against the Steelers, Buffalo Bills wide receiver Steve Johnson dropped a pass in the end zone. Anyone remember that game? I totally thought that Jeremy Sanders would raise his hand, but he didn't. Is he? Oh, he did! Okay, thank you. <laughs> I was looking over here for you. I got it. Okay. Um, so after the game, maybe we'll see if you remember this. After the game, he tweeted this statement. Keep in mind, he dropped the pass. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I will never forget this, ever. And he's talking to God, right? Now, the empathetic sports watcher in me, like, read this story, and I, I even hurt for, for him. And this is 13 years later. I was like, oh, I feel so bad that he dropped the pass, right? But when I hear this story, I don't see this as a sign that God is not pleased with Steve's worship. Because see, essentially what Steve is saying in this tweet is, listen, God, I upheld my end of the deal, okay? I worship you all the time, so why didn't I catch the football? And I do want to say, you know, this is just one tweet, and Steve could feel very differently toward God and, and what worship is now. This is one isolated event, but I think that it can be a humble reminder for all of us when we say things like, listen, God, I upheld my end of the deal, okay? I pray, I go to church, I tell people about you, I pay my tithe, I read my Bible, so why did I not get this job that I really needed? Why did you heal this person of their cancer, but I lost my loved one to the same disease? Why didn't my bank account miraculously multiply because I gave you 10% even when it was hard? I see that happening to other people. Why not me? And please don't mishear me this morning. God does bless us and God does pour out his good gifts on us. Amen? We know that to be true. But guys, it's not because of some kind of messed up transactional formula that we have created. We can't earn God's love and blessings in some kind of calculated if-then way. If I do this and this and this, then God should do this for me in return. If I worship you 24-7, I should have caught the football. We should have won the game. If I worship you 24-7, I'll get the job. I'll be healed. Or, like the expert in religious law in that Luke passage that we read, he wanted to know, what do I need to do for you, God, for eternal life to be the outcome on this end? And I think we all know too well, probably painfully well, that this is not how things go. Because we still lose people. We still lose jobs. We still don't get into our top school. We still end up needing surgery. Why, 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 right? And the classic question that we ask, you all know it, why do bad things happen to good people? But I think the question more often of what we are asking as the people of God when we say that 
is why do bad things happen to faithful believers and faithful worshipers? And I cannot fully answer that question for you this morning, but I can tell you this. Sin and its consequences, yes, have been defeated by the blood of the Lamb, right? But they are still present in our world until he returns again. And let me also say this. God doesn't cause pain and suffering and war and death. Sin does that. See, the religious man in this story, he knew the answer to his own question, right? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with everything that I am and love my neighbor as myself. You can almost hear him kind of reciting it because he would have learned that over and over again in his youth and as he grew up. But here's the thing. <laughs> this is kind of a catch because Jesus says, okay, you, you know what to do. The problem is you can't fake that kind of love. And you really can't do those things if you're just doing them for what you can gain. So in this case with this man, you can't just do these things or attempt to just because you want eternity in heaven. See, the kind of love described in this passage in Luke and in chapters like 1 Corinthians 13 isn't selfish like that, and it doesn't manipulate. I want to be clear, yes, eternity in heaven is a beautiful promise inherited by those who are saved and sanctified and living spirit-filled lives, yes. But don't confuse what that is, church. It is a consequence. It is a gift. It is not our end goal. There are lots of other things God gifts to us when our heart are turned to him. Yes, absolutely. But church, God himself should be our goal, not those blessings themselves, right? God is not a means to an end for the true believer and the true worshiper. One of the saddest things, I think, that we say in our hearts and sometimes, honestly, out loud when we leave Sunday morning worship goes something like this. I didn't really get anything out of the service today. <laughs> I won't make you raise your hands, but I just wonder how many of us have thought that or said that at some point since we've been worshiping corporately. And when we say this, we usually mean things like, I didn't really care for the songs that we sang today. I thought the sermon was boring. I didn't really feel anything. Well, I hate to tell you this. Actually, I don't hate to tell you this. Uh, the worship wasn't for you. We aren't here to worship ourselves or each other. We're here to glorify God. So I would say, church, we need to replace saying, I didn't really get anything out of the service today, out of worship, how about we replace that by asking God, God, were you glorified in our worship today? Did we communicate just how grateful we are and how much we love you? Or what about this? Instead of asking, because we do this too, right? We try to figure out, is this whole thing actually worth it? Like, is this worth my time? There's so many other things I could be doing right now. We ask this, right? Do I get enough out of Sunday mornings to justify going back week after week? Maybe instead of asking that, we ask this. Did I glorify and praise God enough alongside my brothers and sisters? 
To which the answer is always no, right? The answer is always no. So what do we do? We keep coming back to worship together. In Isaiah 66, verse 4, God says to his people, I will send them great trouble for all the things that they have feared. Why? For when I called, they did not answer. When I spoke, they did not listen. They deliberately sinned before my very eyes and chose to do what they know I despise. See, this passage tells us that God was speaking to the Israelites. God was calling to the Israelites. And I would say the same of us today as the church. Church, God is speaking to us, and God is calling to us. And you know what else I would add to this? Since Pentecost, the Spirit is loose in the world. Amen? Working and moving. Maybe you've even heard that right now there is a revival happening, a move of the Spirit at Asbury University. See, their chapel service started this Wednesday morning at 10 a.m., and it's still going, guys. They are still worshiping. They are surrendering to the move of the Spirit. And from all that I have read from what people are saying, it is a genuine spirit of worship in that place, a spirit of repentance, a spirit of surrender to God. And it's spreading to different parts of our country. Even yesterday, Matt and I, uh, on a whim, decided to go to Mount Vernon Nazarene University because they were doing um, a revival service as well as, as sort of overflow of what God is doing at Asbury. And, you know, we spent probably five hours there, like actually getting there and worshiping. And please don't hear that as me, like, look how awesome I am. Because let me be really honest with you. Um, I wasn't going to be obedient to God because even just the day before, Matt was like, so what all do we need to do tomorrow? And the list was long, okay? The list was very long of what we needed to accomplish yesterday. Um, And on that list, I was also hoping for some rest because I'm sure many of you know we haven't had much of that lately, which is fine. I just was hoping for some of that yesterday. And I was like, God, can I please just stay home? (laughs) And God was like, no, I I really want you to go. Um, And let me tell you, church, I haven't felt as rested as I did yesterday um, in a long time. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Guys, God is alive and shining light in the darkness. He is moving in powerful ways. And that same God is present every time we gather. So let me say, if you aren't getting anything out of worship, it's not because God isn't here. It's because we are the ones that sometimes have a selfish, mixed-up motivation for why we're even worshiping in the first place. This might stretch you a little bit, too. We also tend to put a lot of emphasis on this one day of the week, on Sunday, right? I'm going to read a quote from someone who's a lot smarter than I am to explain this. He says, we don't find communion with God by attending a worship event. Before you freak out, keep reading. Instead, we express our communion with God by attending a worship event. Sunday morning is when Christians who have been living with God all week long gather to outwardly express that reality together. And if it's been a hard week for you and the presence of the Lord has not been been real or you have not felt the Lord with you, guess what? Then you get to come here to be encouraged, right? 
We get to come here and encourage those for whom it has been a struggle. And rather than expecting the preacher or the musicians to mediate God's presence to us each weekend, that responsibility belongs to the Holy Spirit, amen, who abides with us every day and everywhere we go. I can be the first to tell you we take what we do seriously as being vessels for God, but church, we are not the ones ushering the presence of the Lord here, right? And we're not the, I'm not the one speaking to you. I hope not. I'm trying to be obedient to say what God wants us to hear. He goes on to say this. Maybe if we expected more of God's spirit Monday through Saturday, we might be content to expect less from our gathering on Sunday. And maybe we'd argue less with one another about the details. See, if, if we are just here for what we can get out of it, we aren't actually here to worship God. You know what we're here to do? To use God. To make us feel a certain way. To say the thing we want him to say to us. We want him to convince the worship leader to play these songs instead. We want to be healed. We want to be blessed. I mean, come on, God. We gave you this hour, hour and a half, depending on who's preaching. What are you giving me? What are you giving me in, in return? When in reality, we're meant to give God first of all, 24-7 of our lives simply because of who he is, not what we can get out of it. See, if Jesus was serious about the church, then worship is about seeing God's intrinsic value, who he is in his nature, not his usefulness to us. See, we don't worship God so he will do things for us. This is what we do. We worship God out of gratitude for what God has already done and what God has promised to do that we know he will be faithful in. When we worship, here's another thing. When we worship to just get something from God, guess what this does? This puts us on a fast track to just being able to discard God from our lives when we think that he has maxed out on his usefulness to us. And here's the thing. <clears throat> Sorry. My throat gets dry, apparently. What that looks like is basically saying, all right, I feel like I've gotten all that I can out of this transaction that we have going on with each other, God, so I'm good. Like, I'm going to set you to the side now. And what's scary is not just that that causes us to see God in a way that we are never meant to see God, but it also has a direct impact on how we see others. Why? It's simple. We are made in God's image. So if we are only using God until we no longer need anything from him, that's exactly what we will do to his creation made in his image. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 58. This is a long passage, but I, I really think that God wants us to read it together this morning. And it really encompasses this idea of treating God transactionally, having an impact on how we see God and on how we see other people. So would you read the word of the Lord with me from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 11. Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. 
Tell my people Israel of their sins. They act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. But we have fasted before you, they say. Aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and it's like you don't even notice, God. Well, I'll tell you why, I responded. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance. You bow your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please me? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will heal quickly. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then you will call and the Lord will answer, Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Church, do you see the connection? If Jesus was serious about the church, then our collective worship is 100% absolutely inseparable from collective justice. God is basically saying in here, listen, you can act pious all you want. You can show up in the temple, or for us, the church, all you want. You can fast and do all the things that make it look like you're fasting all you want. (laughs) But worship that is pleasing to God can only come from a transformed and selfless heart, right? He says, you're just doing this so, so that you can please yourselves, But true worship also can only come from a community, hear this, that does not turn its back from the vulnerable. From a community who doesn't look at the vulnerable and say, "Mm, you don't really have any use for me, so I'm good. I'm going to leave you over here while you're hurting. See, worship that pleases God does not lead us to treat our relationships with God or with others as transactional. There's a beautiful passage in um, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, that I think provides us with an act of worship that I would say was pleasing to God. 
And in this story, Jesus is sitting at a feast at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And while they were eating, Jesus unexpectedly feels something wet touch his feet. And a woman, but not just any woman, a notoriously sinful woman in that community had knelt down and was just weeping and her tears were dripping on to Jesus' feet. And before he knew it, she opened a perfume bottle, but not just any perfume, super high-end expensive stuff. And she just dumps the whole thing on his feet. And Simon the Pharisee and all the other Pharisees that were there for that meal were just in disbelief. The disciples were in disbelief. They said things like, how wasteful. (laughs) That perfume could have been sold to help the poor. Or Simon thought, how immoral. Also, why would this rabbi let a sinful woman touch him? And see, Jesus knew his thoughts. And this is what he said to him. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, in this passage, The other people in the room are basically horrified at what this woman has done for many reasons. To the Pharisees, she shouldn't be touching this rabbi, let alone in such a scandalous way while he's sitting down and she's next to his feet. It just, the whole thing was so inappropriate. And add on top of that, she was probably unclean and now touching him. To the disciples, she was wasteful and impractical. We could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. See, they thought that the act had to tangibly be useful to matter. And here comes in that transactional piece, because now she had no value to them because she wasn't helping their ministry. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell the woman, stop touching me, right? He also doesn't agree with the disciples and tell her, why are you being so wasteful? You might as well have just taken food out of the hands of the poor. Instead, Jesus condemns the Pharisee and the disciples because he recognizes what she is doing for what it is, 
a beautiful, not wasteful expression of love in response to what Jesus did for her. Church, he saw it as her act of worship. See, she had a good idea before going into that room what everyone in there would think about her. Yet she went in anyway, and uninvited. See, she couldn't help but do what she did, no matter what the social consequences would be. And there would be many. And she began to anoint Jesus and to worship her Lord and Savior and to simply admire his holiness. And I think she literally but also figuratively poured out the best of what she had at his feet in adoration. See, church, worship that pleases the Lord is worship that flows out of adoration. As we said, we aren't really worshiping with the right motivation if the reason we're doing it is to get something out of it. And I wonder what might that have looked like in this story. And this is just one one example of what it could have looked like. This woman pouring out that perfume, but expecting, you know, if I do this, Jesus is probably going to figure out a way to get two jars back to me, right? And I'll have more than I started with. But, But I would say based on the way that Jesus reacted to her and her willingness to quite honestly make a fool out of herself, I don't think she was selfishly motivated. (laughs) See, I don't think she was expecting anything at all from Jesus. Instead, she was responding in worship to his love and forgiveness, to what he had already done and simply who who he was. See, Jesus' parable in this passage teaches us that Simon the Pharisee was not overflowing with gratitude for a couple reasons, but mainly he didn't humbly realize all that God had done for him, right? That to Jesus, he was just as notoriously sinful and in need of God as this woman was, but he didn't see himself that way. And Simon and others in the room were making this woman feel less than a person because of what she had done in her life. See, in this story, Simon wasn't worshiping in a way that was pleasing to God. But this woman was. As the band comes up, I want to challenge you. I would venture to say that in a room, this woman, in the room that this woman was in, was technically a room filled with the people of God, right? There are Pharisees everywhere, disciples, But I would say she might have been the only one actually proclaiming the truth of who Jesus was and what he came to do for all of humanity and the way that she was responding to him. And church, I think we have to be able to do the same. Because sadly, at some point, you could find yourself in a room full of Christians and be the only one really responding to God's goodness. And so the question is, are you so in love with Jesus that you will worship him no matter what people around you think? But I also have to say this morning that if we really want to look and act like the bride of Christ that we are called to be, our gatherings on Sunday should look a lot like a room full of people pouring out perfume on the feet of Jesus out of pure adoration and love for him. That is what this place should look like. 
a people who come not expecting anything in return, but to just pour out all of themselves to God, to glorify him. See, this woman, she had to make the choice to leave her house, bring that jar of perfume, and go and find Jesus. She showed up wanting to pour out her love and worship on him. Is that the attitude we have coming here to worship together each week? See, a lot of us Christians talk about heaven a lot, don't we? And our desire to be there someday and how great it will be and it's a source of expectation and hope. And that is all fine. But at the same time, there are a lot of us Christians who are content to just worship half-heartedly, both here and that whole, you know, Monday to Saturday thing that we talked about. And some of us will be filled with more joy and excitement and awe watching a piece of cowhide leather getting thrown around a field tonight than we will be about the presence of God, being in the presence of God with our brothers and sisters this morning. Did you hear that? Some of us are going to be more excited about a piece of cowhide flowing through the air, okay, than we are about gathering here together as brothers and sisters of the same family worshiping in the presence of God. So what am I really saying? Church, there is no point in being excited about heaven someday if we don't even find joy in adoring God together today, right here, right now. Because after all, Heaven, in its simplest definition, is the eternal, unhindered presence of God. It is corporate worship that never ends. <laughs> so before we leave this place today, I just want to ask, can we spend some time dwelling in the presence of the Lord together? Can we delight in the presence of God and who he is? Can we meditate together? Church, can we worship out of the overflow of what God has already done not to get something from him? Can we just spend some time this morning adoring God together and come with repentant hearts? Can we pour out our praise and our adoration on him? We're going to start with a song that to many of you may be unfamiliar, but I, the words are simple. I think you'll catch on fast, but it's so beautiful. And it's so meaningful when we look at this act of worship from this woman. So I'm going to ask that we stand and worship together. But I also, I also want to say maybe for some of us, this is not just a time to adore and to love God and to glorify God. It's a time to repent. A time to say, God, I have made worship something it was never meant to be. I have made it about myself. Or through my worship, I have twisted you into some kind of just thing that I can get things from and then I don't need you anymore after that. Maybe we need to repent because we've made worship something it was never meant to be. But I also just think we can take some time today to adore our Heavenly Father. Amen? Let's worship together.